From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday. To each and every one of you, thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Brian Milady is in the house. If you've got a question, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. Two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. Unfettered access to a living and breathing Dominican at eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. I'm Jack Williams. Charles Berry sitting in today for Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling... Ah, Jeff Burson is not handling our social media efforts. I'm guessing it's Ace McKay who is taking those duties today. And um, our hostess, he is every Thursday, the aforementioned Father Brian Milady. How are you? Fine, thank you. How are you? Terrific, thanks. It's the month of the church, or so you tell me. Well, if you examine all the various feasts in November, many of them are very much connected to the mystery of the church. Of course, we have the classic ones, which are All Saints Day and All Souls Day. And this is based on the idea, there's a reason for this, they're um, connected to each other because they're all connected together in Christ's mystical body. And a mystical body differs from a regular body is because it includes potential members. So all the people who are have gone before us, as we say in the uh, canon, with the sign of faith, these would be people with whom we also have connection. And that connection is also lived out, especially here on earth in the holy sacrifice of the mass, which is the foundation of the earthly church, and so you have the union between the earthly church, the church suffering, and what we used to call the church triumphant, through our Lord's body in his mystical body. And that means we can influence each other. In fact, as we know, all the saints and angels are present wherever the Mass is celebrated, and the unity of our church, one holy Catholic and apostolic, the unity of our church reflects the unity of the human race in a unified body of doctrine in which all these people have a society which is united in Christ. And so when we look at the church, we need to remember even what's celebrated in our, well, we have basilicas this um, uh, November 2, that reflect the basilicas in Rome, again, the unity of the church 
in the unity of the papacy uh, because they are based on faith in our Lord and what happens in them because Christ's body becomes present in them is that the heavenly court, all the angels and saints, all worship with us together so that during the celebration of the Mass, um, heaven is begun on earth. And you remember in Rome, you have these four major basilicas that in some sense represent an aspect of the universal church based in the papacy. And we even have Leo the Great, one of the most famous of the popes, uh, whose, whose life has many, many important uh, aspects to it. One of which is that apparently secular history doesn't accept this too much. But as you recall, when Adel of the Hun was going to destroy Rome, Pope Leo went there supposedly unarmed and they had a long discussion. And Adela was so struck by this that he moved away from Rome and didn't actually attack it. But the point is that as one of the mysteries of our faith and a mystery in which we're preparing also for the Feast of Christ, the King of the Universe, and also to begin Advent as soon as this is over, we have the culmination of all of history in, in Christ, but that culmination is a culmination which has begun here in an earthly society, which is the church. Now, the church has always been called militant in this world, and it's not because it's a crusading organization. It's because it's like an army who hasn't yet won the struggle. And the church here on earth is in struggle. It's in struggle with the civil institutions with which it lives. Oftentimes, we, in itself, it's in struggle. And our struggles reflect our need, though, for a final conversion of heart when the church will be perfect. Now, there was a Jesuit thinker who said that the church was a perfect society. Some people took that to mean that everybody in it was perfect. That's not what he meant. What he meant was that it had all of the means necessary in the struggle to lead people to holiness and to heaven, and especially those would be the sacraments and the, the hierarchy and a unity of doctrine. So during this month, we should celebrate this church into which we, many of us, um, some of course converted, some haven't yet converted, they're potential Catholics. But we who are so happy as little children into which we were born, I often don't understand the loathing that some cradle Catholics have for the church. Um, I know my own experience is that there are lots of black eyes in the church. There are a lot of things that aren't perfect, especially the people. But I also have to think of how many wonderful things we have in our church as a sign of unity and healing for the human race. I wish that people could get beyond some of those things they consider to be the black eyes and 
emphasize rather the things that are positive. Also, it's interesting that there's some there's a Lutheran historian I know of who's actually a Catholic apologist. And for many people, when you try to talk to them about return to Catholicism, they'll say, oh, well, what about Galileo? Oh, well, what about the Crusades? Oh, well, what about the Inquisition? Well, all right, those things were difficult episodes to explain. But there is an explanation for them. And in proper historical context, they make sense but people refuse to look at the proper historical context. In other words, they want to judge the 13th century in a society in which everyone was almost everyone was Catholic by the same standards as the 20th century as a result of the liberalism of the Enlightenment. And it's just not possible. Um, it's not the same world at all we're speaking of. So we should celebrate with all saints and all souls in our Eucharist that wonderful communion which they experience suffering in purgatory as on their way to heaven and certainly will be there a lot through our cooperation and the saints with whom we have a great fellowship by our fellowship here also in this world. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. We'll talk uh, straight ahead. We'll talk to Joe in Philadelphia, and we've got plenty of time for your calls and a couple of open phone lines at 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to speak with you. That number is 1-205-271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, beauty lifts the heart and mind to God. And for the first time ever, we've got a wonderful item at EWTN's Religious Catalog, Gorelli has created a full rosary that can be worn as a piece of fine jewelry. This unique matte-finished hematite and sterling silver Magnificat Rosalette has a patented clasp design with each crucifix and is unlike any other rosary or bracelet. This new creative design allows you to safely wear your rosary so that you'll never be without it. 
Rosalettes are also available in gold, silver, and hematite. Just visit EWTNRC.com for these other selections. It's available in sizes small, medium, and large, and these beautiful pieces are imported from Italy. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping of online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. Still a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First up today is Joe, a first-time caller near Philadelphia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Joe, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, I've been waiting to try to get to get through, and I'm, I'm very glad I got through. You guys have really helped me with a an awful lot of um, positive feedback. I'm certainly not uh, very good at it yet, but uh, uh, hopefully I'll learn more and more and I'll be able to do uh, a, a little bit of apologetics. I have a friend, he's uh, um, like one, one of those non-denominational Christian, uh, um, and him and I share music and uh, um, several other things. We've been very good friends over almost 15 years. And he suddenly is coming back with me, telling me that my Catholic faith is a uh, is a cult. And he he had this video going where they explained all the other uh, Christian faiths as cult, and they're the only ones that's true because they've eliminated all of the stuff from their from their Bible that they consider not part of the the original uh, Bible. And one of the items that I told him about was that. Uh, the, king, you know, the keys of the kingdom were given to Peter and not to all the other apostles. So these guys think that they have new revelation, that they know what they're doing. It, it's not, it doesn't make any sense. And he said to me, well, what, what uh, um, uh, translation of the Bible are you looking at? Because I don't have that. And I'm like, really? There are cults that have taken that out of the Bible? I just sounds really strange anyway. Well, just the idea of progressive revelation is strange. Uh, Christ closed his revelation with the death of the last apostle. There won't be any new revelations. And, uh, of course, also the church emphasizes tradition as well as scripture. In fact, scripture actually came second. Tradition, which would be the preaching of the apostles, came first. And they judged what was in the Bible, in other words, canonical or not canonical, inspired or not inspired, as whether it corresponded with tradition. Now, of course, Scripture does have pride of place as being a result of the direct assistance by the Holy Spirit. But anybody could say anything was the result of the assistance of the Holy Spirit if they didn't have to objectify it by comparison to what other people think or what the church has thought or what people have preached or anything like that. And it's very convenient to remove from your Bible things that don't agree with you. <laughs> I mean, that's... Remember Thomas Jefferson uh, decided he accepted the Bible, but he took all the miracles out and anything to do with sacrifice or atonement. So he basically reduced Jesus to a good moral teacher. Well, Christ may be a good moral teacher, but he's quite a bit more than that. And the fact that they ref uh, Jefferson refused to recognize that makes his attempt very spurious. 
Also, the whole idea of the sect. Now, see, Christ, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It's quite clear in St. Paul. There aren't sects. Sects are where one group experiences the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and their inspiration disagrees with another group. And almost from the beginning, Protestantism has suffered from lack of unity. When the Council of Trent was called to answer the Protestant heresies, uh, Archbishop Cranmer in England, who decided that he wanted to make a pan-Protestant council that would be the equivalent of the Council of Trent for the Protestant faith. So he went down to, around to all the various Protestant thinkers and broached the subject to them. Well, they weren't necessarily against the idea, but they couldn't agree on where to meet. <laughs> I mean, Luther wanted to meet in Germany. Calvin wanted to meet in France. Cranmer wanted to meet in England. When you can't even agree on where you're going to meet 20 years after the Reformation occurs, there's something rotten somewhere in the unity of your doctrine. And as to whether this sect is true or that sect is true, the standard has to be what the teaching of the church has always held and what Scripture holds, the whole of Scripture, not just your particular version of it. So either Christ instituted seven sacraments or he didn't. He can't be true for one group and not true for another group. Or because we find sacraments inconvenient, therefore we X them out of the equation. Uh, Luther certainly had a, a, a respect for the Eucharist, very much so, but he didn't believe it was a sacrifice, and that's why he didn't like the Mass offered for the living and the dead. And the same eventually became true of the Anglicans, although they were ambiguous enough about it that they're still fighting about it today, whether it's the same as the Catholic Mass or just the communion service or what, a, what exactly it is. So, I don't know if you'll ever convince your friend because when they decide their truth is their truth, there's not much you can do to answer that as long as they think that. But you have to ask them, how, how are you doing? There are, what, 5,000 Protestant sects now in the world? I mean, how are you doing with presenting a unified vision of Christ. You know, your good friend Deacon Harold Burke Sivers likes to point out that uh, Siri, the digital assistant associated with Apple devices, if you ask her who founded any particular sect of Christianity, she'll give you the name of some person. And if you ask her who founded the Catholic Church, she'll tell you Jesus Christ. <laughs> yes, of course. I mean, you can't pretend that Christ's doctrine... Christ's religion waited till the 16th century to finally be founded, and all the stuff that went in between was heresy. Or a cult, a cult. We don't, you know, evacuate the minds of our believers. They're encouraged to think. It's part of the deal. God bless you, Joe. We appreciate the phone call today from Philadelphia. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and pick up uh, one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. That's what Janine did. And, Father, I'll tell you, 
as I travel around in more and more places, it's getting difficult to find a mass of the day for Saturday in a lot of places, mm. which makes Janine's question very poignant. She's a first-time caller in Port Huron, Michigan, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Janine, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father. I've just got a quick yes or no answer for you. If you go to the vigil mass on Saturday night to um, see first Saturday mass, and then you do go to a regular mass on Sunday, does that Saturday... Is that a Saturday considered okay for for Saturday? Uh, I would say yes. It's after all a mass on Saturday. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Very good. Thank you, Janine. We appreciate that phone call. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Uh, open phone lines for you, and still plenty of time for your questions. It's it's obligatory. It's not an official open line Thursday until we answer this question, Father. So Greg writes in, does any other Christian denomination believe in purgatory, and where is it in the Bible? Uh, to my knowledge, the answer to the first is no. And the answer to the second is the primary source for purgatory in the Bible is in Maccabees. Of the, uh, we just had it in a reading in the Office of Readings, where there were troops fighting with him, the pagans, and they were killed in the war. And when they examined their clothing, they discovered that they had these amulets, these pagan amulets under their shirt. I guess they wanted to cover both, uh, all their bets. <laughs> <laughs> so Judas took this to be that they really did have faith in Israel. But their faith was compromised very much by an action which wasn't worthy of it. And therefore, he had a sacrifice offered for them uh, once he reconstituted the temple. Now, it wouldn't make any sense to have a sacrifice offered that they were in heaven or in hell. So the basic conclusion is that the prayers we make for the dead, and I believe that's the source of the famous line, it's a holy and wholesome thing to pray for the dead, can affect their purgation after death. In other words, they're worthy of heaven, but there's something they did here that was a no-no that they have not atoned for. They're fine with God if they're not fine with themselves. So they need time to prepare themselves. And... The famous uh, line also that's often used is from the Gospels where it's stated that a debtor will not get out of prison until he's paid the last penny. And the last penny has to do with the um, passive atonement for temporal punishment due to sin. 833-288-EWTN. It's a free phone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. 833-288-3986. If you're not in the United States or Canada, that's not a problem. We still have a number for you, and we would be happy to take your question as well. That number is one 271 2985 and we will even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 271 2985. 
And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Malady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Still a couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Karen, a first-time caller in the great state of South Carolina, listening on Sacred Heart Radio's app. Karen, you are on with Father Milady. Great, thank you. I have a question about how we as Catholics can talk to non-Catholics about what's happened in the church where priests or other religious uh, members have behaved in ways that are clearly not acceptable, and it appears as though folks in the church, and maybe even the Pope at certain times, were aware and maybe covered it up or didn't take action. So how do we address those issues? All right. Well, of course, these are kind of small shoulders uh, in such a short period of time to try to address those issues. <laughs> After all, they've been at going for 20 years now. But I will say to you is this. Many people believe that the cause of this is celibacy. If we just let priests get married, they wouldn't molest children. Well, that's stupid. Anybody who hears confessions knows that fathers molest children, uncles molest children. Um, there's all kinds of people that molest children. And are we the only religious group that molests children? No. In fact, we probably have less Catholic priests that do it than in some other places. Furthermore, it's notorious with us, partially because of our stance on sexual ethics, it's sad and really evil to see, but my point many years ago, I was on Fox discussing this issue, and I said, you know, pedophilia is a horrible thing for anyone. It's especially horrible for a Catholic priest because you wonder what this poor man has in his mind where he can't find some meaningful adult relationships that aren't sexual in nature but the thing we have to remember is that in our moral theology for many years there wasn't anything that was intrinsically sinful and there's even a book from 1979 that was published by a bunch of Catholic priests and theologians it's called Guidelines to Human Sexuality where they even justify bestiality, provided it's done lovingly and you're getting fulfilled by it. Now, this is ridiculous. No one could hold this and be a Christian. And yet, this book was recommended by the Catholic Theological Society of America. And it's no wonder for many years we didn't have people going to confession. When I was a young priest, there were cobwebs on the confessionals 
you'd sit there Saturday afternoon and nobody would show up, you know. Uh, it was very weird. Everybody went from confessing often to confessing not at all. Now, as to the cover-up thing, that I find shocking. And I've known a few priests who have not done it. They've been innocent. And yet, their bishop has never talked to them about it. They've been removing the priesthood. All they've dealt with are officials of the chancery. But they've never even had a meeting with their bishop. And he's supposed to be their father. I mean, that to me is a completely impersonal, bureaucratic um, group that uses only those standards to basically cover up the truth. That has to change. And that was the big change. Uh, of course, it has to change. Oriented to changing the behavior of priests or being sure priests are trained enough or weeded out in seminaries who would be susceptible to this kind of temptation. So that's what I have to say about that. Thanks, Karen. We appreciate the call today. 833 833- 288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Lee would like to know what would happen to someone who has not gone to confession for five years. I mean, I I don't quite understand what they mean what would happen to them. If they die in the state of mortal sin, they could go to hell. But you know, there's always the option of going. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, just change your mind and go. I mean, confession is, I find it very consoling that such a thing exists. And I don't quite understand why people feel they need, need to stay away. Is there some lack of humility here where they don't really want people to know that they're sinners? Well, hello. Everybody in the human race is a sinner except for Barry and Jesus. Even Peter had to confess betrayal of our Lord. So if you look at that kind of thing, obviously you can always change that situation by, by actually going. It's not hard. It doesn't cost anything. We pay a psychiatrist. Well, I bet the price has gone up now. Ten years ago it was $100 an hour. To listen to us. The priest gets paid nothing to sit and listen to this. All you have to do is reveal your conscience to our Lord through the mediation of the priest. And all of us think, or many people have the idea, that every priest sits and remembers everything they heard in confession. I'll have people who come and say, Oh, I was here about six months ago. Remember when I told you this? And honestly, I don't remember anything. <laughs> You hear it so much that unless it's murder, I mean, I might remember that confession. But it's just people with their foibles. So it's important for them to talk to someone about it. And you can occasionally make remarks. But, uh, you know, people need to get over it, get over the idea that they're too good to express themselves to our Lord. Our Lord sits there and waits for you. That's why he died on the cross. He wants you to go to heaven. That's why he established confession. What about those who are fearful of 
stories they've heard from the past of harsh scoldings in the confessional? Well, I would say there are two things you have to say about that. First of all, there are very few priests today that harshly scold people in the confessional because they might be uh, accused of things outside. But secondly, I mean, what do you expect? You know, especially if you're guilty of hypocrisy or something like that. Is it really so difficult for an adult to hear um, an analysis of things that are um, a person's kind of outraged at a bit? Now, of course, if it's children, that's different. And again, no self-respecting priest would... I, I don't know, I never experienced these things of priests yelling at me in confession. Uh, when it became possible for this to occur, I was like in the ninth grade, I would say. And it was things where the priest thought I was being hypocritical about certain things. But, uh, hell, heck, it's a very small price to pay for and basically salvation. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We've still got time for your phone calls at 833-288-3986. Father Tina writes in. She says, Hello, Father Milady. I am writing to see if you can direct me to some readings or help me think better on my current situation. I'm a 70-year-old woman whose 42-year-old son has been living at home for the past eight years. He is on disability for severe anxiety and depression, and he's on three different medications and has been in therapy in the past. Reading the Bible, I came across Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the reality of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. But Einstein also said that insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. My question is, should I just give it to Jesus, quote-unquote, or let it go? How many rosaries do I need to say? How many prayers to see my son healed? Any advice would be much appreciated. Oh, gosh. Well, this is a vast subject, um, and uh, you'd have to know the person to make uh, some advice. Some people, for their own good, you have to get to be responsible for themselves. Because even if they have anxiety and they have bad things, a lot of people will book it for all it's worth. And um, they won't do any chores. They won't obey any rules. Eventually, you have to reach the point where you have to love the person enough to say, these are the rules. If you won't obey them, live somewhere else. Now, when you tell people this in confession, they go crazy. They say, oh, but I love my son. I say, are you really loving him? Because what you're doing is you're saving him from himself. What would happen if you weren't around anymore? What would he do then? And if the person's 42 years old, uh, well, I think they could possibly do some work to earn their keep even. Uh, maybe uh, overseen by you, but still, it's a, a question of having some ability to get a person to grow up and have some adult characteristics. Now, maybe that's not possible at your part. I don't know because I don't know your son. I'd have to know what the case is physically, and a doctor would have to be consulted too. But you know, there are all kinds of people today 
People are dying from fentanyl, for heaven's sakes. And they get these people to prescribe it for them, even. And there's a variation on it. I was watching the news last night. It's even worse. And, and there are people, doctors, that will actually prescribe this for people um, because it makes them pass their tests easier. And then all of a sudden, the person just dies one day. So you have to have a healthy sense of <clears throat> what's going on and find someone, a medical specialist you trust, as to how many of these medications are necessary. In the United States, we tend to have a philosophy. Whenever there's anything wrong, a pill will resolve it. And it won't in many cases. Uh, in many cases, love will. Now, it's not being insane to love the person. But then, of course, you have to love the person enough and have faith enough in God to allow the person to begin as far as they're able to act like an adult to take responsibility for their lives. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833 833- 288-3986. Be sure to join us for More to Life tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Christians are meant to be more than nice. Dr. Lisa or Dr. Greg and Lisa Popcheck will help you be the strong person that you're called to be. That's More to Life tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Amanda wants to know how the Bible was formed and how the books were chosen. Okay. <clears throat> It depends. Remember, the Bible includes the Old Testament. So some of those books are by the prophets, prophetic inspiration. Some by historians being uh, supported by God as to how to write a history of Christianity, or I should say of Judaism. Uh, some are wisdom literature. And then when it comes to the firing of the New Testament, you have... Uh, well, basically, that's all based on the Gospels. So you have the apostles who received it for inspiration, and then they evangelize, and then some of their companions, either they themselves, as in the case with Matthew and John, or their companions, as in the case with Luke and Mark. Luke, remember, was a companion of St. Paul, and Mark was a companion of Peter. They uh, write down for posterity the reflections of these people's life with Christ and their experience with Christ. And after uh, the death of the apostle, they're published for the Christian faithful. Of course, the letters of St. Paul, epistles of St. Paul and the other epistles, are obviously inspired by the preaching of the person involved. And then Acts of the Apostles, an extremely important book, it wasn't really important to me until I studied it, and even then I didn't appreciate it totally. But now I do because it's basically uh, the manner in which the Holy Spirit forms the church. And remember, by tradition, it's a companion to Luke. It's the continuation of Luke, who himself wasn't one of the apostles. He was a physician, but who was a particularly gifted narrator and narrated the whole thing from Christ's conception 
annunciation until Christ's going to heaven. Now, how do we know what books were part of it? Well, Hebrew scriptures are fairly canonized by everyone. The trouble is that when the community divided and many of them went into other countries, there became a few books that were revealed for the Greek mission. They're called the Septuagint. And those books were also approved in the sense that they were accepted as being inspired. However, when the rabbis, after the fall of Jerusalem, determined the canon, they wanted to make it as Hebrew as possible. So they excluded those books, which has caused not a great deal of difficulty. Maccabees is, of course, one of them. In the New Testament, when they finally got together to discuss the canon of Scripture, and it, even though it was kind of agreed upon in the early church, it was only solemnly defined in the Council of Trent, that would basically use the judgment that it most corresponded to the preaching and life of the church. Because, you know, there are all kinds of pseudo-gospels. Thomas is one, James, Proto-Evangelium of James is another one. And they even have elements in them that have been accepted as true, but not the whole gospel. So in the Proto-Evangelium of James, for instance, we have Mary's own conception in St. Anne's womb and her presentation in the temple that we've always observed as a feast. So it was basically through the acceptance of the church that these books were considered to be canonical. Matt Gubensky, our phone screener extraordinaire, is falling asleep. We've still got time to squeeze in your phone call if you'll pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Andrew writes in, and he wants to know, is it true that there is no salvation outside of the Catholic Church? Yes, that is true but it has to be interpreted by a distinction. Distinctions are very important. There is no salvation outside the Catholic Church objectively, because objectively the Catholic Church has the final fullness of all the means necessary for salvation to connect us to Christ. However, God never condemns those who do what they're able to do. And this is from the standpoint of the will as far as responsibility is concerned. So insofar as you can know what the church teaches and responsibly accept it, you're judged. Insofar as you can't know, you have a kind of invincible ignorance. If you don't accept what the church teaches, that's through no fault of your own. And as a result, there are certainly people outside the visible communion of the church that uh, at least believe enough in what Christ revealed explicitly to experience salvation. And according to the Epistle of the Hebrews, in chapter 11, there are two things you have to believe to be saved. The first is that God exists, and the second is that he is the rewarder of good deeds and the punisher of evil deeds. That's the two basic things. All the rest fills it out, depending on how close you are 
to our Lord himself. Now, in theory, at least, the person who was a pagan and believed in these things enough to prepare himself, immediately when he recognized Christ, he'd believe in him. The classic uh, um, example of this is a centurion who was a pagan and supporter of the synagogue, but not a Jew. And the minute he undersees Christ, understands Christ, he believes in him. Amen, I have tell you, I have not found such faith in all of Israel. And a similar thing is true of the Magi, who immediately recognized uh, the Lord. And I would say Simeon and Anna, because they're Jews, and they've been devout and holy throughout all their lives. And as even as a baby, they recognize him and anyone who accepts what they implicitly believe as being finally fulfilled explicitly in our Lord and the Church. Um, Nathaniel writes in, I know that if you offer a Mass for someone, it helps them get out of purgatory. If you attend Mass, like a daily Mass, for instance, will that help relatives or any other people in purgatory or only the person the Mass is offered for? Well, every Mass, you can influence people's purgation. But the Mass that you attach the stipend to we have an obligation to celebrate for that person's salvation in from purgatory. So that's an obligation placed on us to be sure that that happens. If you decide to apply your own prayers to someone else, you're perfectly free to do that. But we're not free to apply the Mass's fruits to someone else. Uh, the Church has an obligation to apply it to the person for whom the stipend is given. Uh, and Daryl would like to know, what is the purpose of having two judgments? Well, I, all I know is there are two judgments. <laughs> and uh, if you want to know what happens in both, in the first one you have your personal encounter with the Lord, in which you're judged worthy of heaven, hell, or purgatory. But then this judgment, which is secret, has to, in the words of Scripture, be shouted out to the rooftops, too. And so in the Matthew 25, where the sheep are separated from the goats, the personal judgment, which was made for you with our Lord, now becomes publicly pronounced before the whole of assembled creation. And what's hidden will be made known. Now, this will add to the sufferings of the damned. And will add to the joy of the saved. Because what the real intentions were of their hearts will finally be completely known by everyone. And then finally today, uh, Randall would like to know, how, or how would you speak against the prosperity gospel? Oh, gosh, well, that's easy to do. Uh, I had to laugh the other day because I have a, <laughs> a friend I really like. He's an evangelical, but he's a Puerto Rican. He also preaches in their church. And his sermons, especially on matrimony, are very good. But um, he had this mime that had uh, the the preacher of the Prosperity gospel with the papal crown on his head. 
<laughs> and was paying the Catholics all preach the prosperity gospel. Well, that's always come as news to me. <laughs> uh, most Catholics have been destitute and suffering for most of their lives for the last 2,000 years. We're the only church, for example, that as a church permits anybody, rich, poor, destitute, whatever, to come and doesn't require them to pay among the Protestant sects. So the prosperity gospel is the idea that comes from a very primitive idea in the Old Testament, that if you're in the state of grace, then you'll also have material prosperity too. And if you carry it far enough, some people criticize Calvin for stating this. I'm not really sure this is just, but they do. That you can tell a person's salvation by how prosperous they are here on earth. So if you're a rich merchant, you're obviously saved. But if you're a poor laborer, you probably aren't. And you can tell the difference between the two. Uh, look, we're all, we should all be clear. The maturity of the New Testament is very clear. And also things like the book of Job in the Old Testament. That the primary prosperity all of us receive is not a material prosperity. It's a spiritual prosperity of God, union with God and good works. And that this could be held by people who are, are destitute. And I remember in Italy they used to say when people had nothing to eat, that was the case for a while some time, they just add another thing of soup, uh, water to the soup <laughs> for anybody who came. Marianne, Robert, Tom, call us back tomorrow. We are flat out of time today. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Malady, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Colin Donovan. Until then, God bless.